Mimi Fagelson, also known as Reb Mimi, is the Mashpia Ruchanit, spiritual mentor of the Shechter Rabbinical School in Jerusalem, where she also teaches Talmud and Hasidic thought. She served in the same position for 16 years at the Ziegler School of Rabbinic Studies in Los Angeles. Born in the United States, Mimi moved to Israel at age 8 and began studying with Rabbi Shlomo Karlbach at 15. In 1994, she was ordained by Rabbi Karlbach. In a secret ceremony, she became the first Orthodox female rabbi since the Holocaust. This was only made public in 2001. Still, 20 years later, the Orthodox Jewish community is challenged when it confronts the growing number of female Orthodox rabbis. She was also the associate director of the popular Yakar Synagogue and Beit Midrash in Jerusalem and its Rosh Beit Midrash Lenashim, the women's learning program. I sat down with Mimi in her apartment in Jerusalem to discuss her experience as a spiritual mentor for American and Israeli Jews, what it's like to be the public figure, Reb Mimi, her time with Reb Shlomo Karbach, and many deep answers to simple questions. I'm Barack Holman, the author of Figure It Out When You Get There, a memoir of stories about living life first and watching how everything falls into place, and a shtickle shalom, a student, his mentor, and their unconventional conversations. And this is Jewish People and Ideas, a podcast of conversations with Jewish thought leaders about contemporary Jewish topics. This episode of Jewish People and Ideas is sponsored by JerusalemEverything.com an online Jerusalem artist cooperative which sells high-quality original Jewish art in Judaica at low-cost prices, all made in Israel and shipped from Jerusalem. To learn more, go to JerusalemEverything.com. In the documentary, You Never Know, you say your dream was to return to Jerusalem and be yourself. And you said, I'd be happy to be a taxi driver. I said that my dream is to come home and be myself. And since I can't do that, I'll be happy to come home and be a taxi driver. So are you yourself? You're back now. Are you yourself? I still want to be a taxi driver. My fantasy about uh, to be a taxi driver is because I was in the States for three months when I was 35. It was kind of my running away from home. And it was right before Pesach and Easter. At the same time, I got into a, a cab in Boston and started talking to the taxi driver. And he said to me, so what do you do? I, at the time, wasn't telling people that I was an ordained rabbi. So I said, actually, I teach Jewish spirituality and mysticism. And he goes, so you're a rabbi, are you? <laughs> and I'm like, shh, don't tell, because in Jerusalem, they'll kill me. They'll kill me in Yerushalayim if they find out that I'm actually a rabbi. And then I said, and why is it so simple for him to understand exactly who I am? And everyone else in the streets of Yerushalayim is ignoring my existence as who I am. And then I said, Erev Pesach, thank you, Master of the World, for giving me the gift of someone seeing me as who I am. And then I said to him, and have you been doing this for a long time? And he said to me, without batting an eye, for 30 years, I've been getting people where they need to get to. And then I said, master of the world, I can go back to the airport because whatever I came to receive in Boston, I received. Will I ever merit to say that sentence? For 30 years, I've been getting people where they need to get to. And then, yes, my mind says, when people get into the cab, they know where they want to go. And he has a map to get people where they need to go. And we actually got lost on the way. And when people walk into my heart, I have no idea where we're going. They don't know where they're going. And we don't know how we're going to get there. That's all true. Nonetheless, that sentence, for 30 years, I've been getting people where they need to get to with that kind of assurance and clarity, said, Master the world, that's the gift. And from that day, I said, God willing, I'll have the courage. Similar to when I said after the PSS and the Rebbe prayed that I would have 
the ability when I finished my master's degree to sweep the streets of Yerushalayim for six months. So here, I sweep the streets of Yerushalayim for six months. It's, um, it's be a cab driver, get people where they need to get to and clean up the world. And so that dream hasn't left me. And I pray for myself that I actually have the courage to, to be a taxi driver, to be a taxi driver. And recently I even had a wonderful conversation with a taxi, with a taxi driver about what kind of documentation I need and what kind of, what process I need to go through in order to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, in Yerushalayim, in Israel, a taxi driver either makes your day or breaks your day. Either he gives you a musal and teaches you what to do and tells you what to think and how to live your life. And it's like a mikvah for your soul. Or he drives you crazy and he cheats you and you walk out of the cab miserable. And I can be that first kind of cab driver. And, you know, you stop your, it's, it's so simple. It's so simple. You know, you turn off your meter half a block before the, you arrive and the person in your cab feels that they're a millionaire uh. and they've been taken care of and there's something special about them. And there's chesed, there's chesed in their day and there's chesed in their life. Chesed is kindness. And what is it? Uh, half a second? Okay, per meter, what is it? One ride a day is a free ride if you accumulate what it is. And people walk out of your cab shining. And wherever they walk into, whenever they talk to, they're going to shine. Because what? Because you saved them a half a second? What chesed? So you said that what you are as a rabbi and that people in Jerusalem don't accept that. What does it mean to be a rabbi? What do you mean when you say that? You know, I think more than, you know, they're all phrases. I'm going to say first and foremost, they're all phrases. I'm a rav, I'm a rebbe, I'm a soul mother, I'm a soul sister, I'm a travel guide, I'm a presence, I'm Miriam and Sarah. That's who I am. I'm all of those put together. So for me, you know, there's a story about Rip Shlomo. Shlomo Karabach. That I, uh, I shared at his last yard site of 25 years, and I shared the story, and it's a story that walks with me. A story that was talking about who he is, and about how Kuchabrichu, how the master of the world, manifests in this world, and how I aspire to manifest in this world. And that's why there's a sign over there that says, Shmo Mirachok, that was a gift from one of my soul children. So the story is that uh, there was a, a Rosh Hashiva, and when Shlomo told the story, he said, who of course wouldn't talk to me until he needed me. You know, there was pain in, the, in that moment. That came to talk to him to ask him to get his son out of an ashram. And Rav Shlomo traveled to the city where the ashram was, and he sent a note into the ashram that he's waiting for him at a certain corner. And the way Rav Shlomo told the story, and I only heard him tell the story once. He waited there for three days. He said other than to relieve himself, he was there at the corner for three days. And finally the young man shows up. They hug, they talk, and then Rav Shlomo says to him, please tell me, why? Why three days? And he said, you know, when I got the note, I knew my father sent you. And I ripped it up, and I had no intention on coming. And yesterday, I had no intention on coming. And this morning, I had no intention on coming. 20 minutes ago, I realized that if I don't come, you're not going to leave. And that's why I came. And Master World says the same thing to us every day. I'm sitting at any corner where you stop, and I'm waiting. And the people that show up at Bet Knesset on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, they're the believers because they know that God's there waiting for them. Whenever they show up, God will be there. That's why they come. And Miriam stands there waiting to see, waiting to see. And I have this sign, Shmo Mirachok, because... Keep your distance. Keep your distance. Keep your distance. Because one of my soul children 
הרב משה בנימין, he, when, his, when he was studying here in Yerushalayim for a year, and I was still teaching in LA, he said, the cars, they all say, שמור מרחק, שמור מרחק, שמור מרחק. He is saying, שמור מרחק, שמור מרחק. And, and what does this mean that people say, keep a distance from each other? What kind of thing is that? And uh, I remember driving to work at, uh, at Ziegler in Los Angeles, and there was a car in front of me, and the license plate said, repent. And I'm going, no Musar, no rebuking it. It's 7.30 in the morning. I'm sorry. And then a couple of days later, I was driving back, and there was, a, uh, there was a license plate that said, I am here. I said, okay, I can deal with that one. So he said, the car is here. Everyone says, shmol mechak, shmol mechak. Keep a distance, keep a distance. And then he said, what would Mimi do? What would she say? How would she read this? And then, if you see on the sign, it says merachok, but the vav is in a different letter, a different color. So you see shmol merachok, but really shmol merachok, which means don't keep a distance. It means guard from a distance. Observe each other, watch each other, see each other. So for me, what it means to be a rav, what it means to be a rebbe, what it means to be a soul mother, whether it means to be a partner, is to have that ability to be present, to observe, to give someone strength, to witness that no one should walk in the world not seen, not heard, not understood, to the best of my ability. And you know, the Tzanzer Rebbe, it's told that the Tzanzer Rebbe, if someone came to him and he wasn't his chassid, he'd say, I'm not your Rebbe. And it's told about the Kuman Rebbe, that if that happened, he would say, you're not, I'm not your Rebbe, but let me tell you who your Rebbe is. So the truth is, you can't be a Rav for everyone. And that's also true. You can be a Rav for those who you're connected to on a soul level and walk in the world with them in that way. There's Miriam, Sarah, but Freda, Leah. Yes. And then there's, there's Red Mimi. Red Mimi. Are they the same person? They're all in dialogue. They're all in dialogue. I pray to say yes. I think the challenge is that I have more say in the world as to who Miriam Sarah is versus who Red Mimi is. That's a good point. There are very few people that call me Miriam Sarah, half a dozen that call me Miriam Sarah. And both Miriam and Sarah demand of me my presence and how I walk in the world. They've molded me, their images. And Rib Mimi is how I'm known in the world. And Rib Mimi is how I'm called. And Rib Mimi is how I'm loved. And Rib Mimi is the one who's challenged. That being said, I don't have a say on all of Rib Mimi. I have a say on part of Rib Mimi. And part of Rib Mimi is, is, is belongs to the public. And I don't have a say on how people experience her and what they ask of her. And I love being Rib Mimi. That's true. I love being able to love. I love being able to teach. I love being able to hold people. I love being able to cry with people. I love being able to see people in ways that other people don't see them. I love Rib Mimi. And there's a part of me, I'm Sarah, that's private and that doesn't get seen in the world. And, and that's also true. When I uh, received my doctorate, I started signing Harav Dr. Red Mimi Feigelson, Rabbi Dr. Red Mimi Feigelson. And it was a lot. It, it is a lot. And I'm actually quite insistent on it. And I'm actually very obnoxious about it. And, and there are multiple reasons for that. My grandfather, may rest in peace, I never met my, grand, my mother's parents. I met my, grand, my father's parents. I, lived with them. I grew up with them. But my mother's parents, I never met. And they were people behind, before their time. And I am a complete direct descendant of who they both are. I bring both my grandfather and my grandmother together. So what that means is my grandfather was Rabbi Dr. David Rubenstein. And he was born in Nevardok, Musar. His first smicha was from Slobodka. His second smicha was from Rav Kook. 
and he had a PhD in, from Colombia, and he wrote on Judaism and democracy in 1945. My grandmother had a master's degree in the 20s, and I wear her, her graduation ring. So my grandparents were powerhouses in vision of what learning was and how you learn Torah. And my mother remembers interfaith dialogue in her home as a child, and she remembers her father, the Litvak, taking her to the Koshnitzer Rebbe in the Bronx to a tish. And my mother was the only girl that learned Gemara. She was the only girl in a boy's yeshiva because her father wanted her to learn. Mm. And he was Rabbi Doctor. And it's my gift and my honor and also my ability to let him know that the vision wasn't lost, even though he and my grandmother both died young. And my mother was 13 when her mother died and 17 when her father died. Mm. So I never physically met them. And yet I have, a, I have this gift of being able to preserve the rabbi doctor. And the Rebbe is who I am, and I don't want to lose that because of the rabbi doctor. So that's why rabbi doctor Rebbe Mimi. That being said also, there's a part of me that is very pained by the pursuit of titles. And that's true. The Israel that I grew up in, Harav, was the highest title you could ask for. If you're going to ask for a title, Harav, the rabbi, that was the highest, the most respected, the most revered. And now, all of my uh, colleagues, if I can call them colleagues, they're all walking around with harav doctor, harav doctor, harav doctor. And I look at them and I say, why? What's that about? What happened that harav isn't enough? That being said, guys, if this is the game you're going to play, bring it on. I'll play the game with you. I'm done with hiding and I'm done with not being honest and, about who I am. And if you can't live with me and if you can't live with who I am, then fine but I'm not hiding anymore. So if you think that the title you need to walk in the world with is Harav Doktor, fine, here it is, Harav Doktor, that's who I am. And Reb Mimi is my Torah, Reb Mimi is my Talmudim, it's my teaching, it's my students, it's my life, it's who I am. So sometimes I'll say, Harav Doktor is what I do and Reb Mimi is who I am. And I'm not letting go of any of it. And then my friend Chagai, Dr. Chagai Mizgav, he says, well, the abbreviations really is Haradar Mimi. Harav Dr. Mimi. Haradar Mimi. So like, you're on my radar. And that's the deal. So I'm on, I'm, I'm, I'm on someone's radar. And that's how I live with the titles. And that's, and that's the Reb Mimi piece. Is, um, is, and, and my students call me Reb Mimi, Rebster, Reb M. Like, uh, and that's, those are all endearing to me. So you grew up in Israel, essentially. You moved here when you were eight. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then... You went to the States for 16 years as a professional, professional Jewish educator. So you understand Israeli Jewry and American Jewry. I don't understand American Jewry and I don't understand Israeli Jewry. <laughs> okay. So let me say it another way. You've experienced Israeli Jewry and American Jewry. Yes. From your experience, what do you see are the biggest challenges facing American Jews as opposed to Israeli Jews? I don't like to pit them opposite each other. I feel that that split is, um, is harmful for us. My mother tells a story that when I came to Israel, it's a story I'm very proud of. I don't remember it. I was eight years old. You know, here in Israel, everything is about what Eda you belong to. Like you're Ashkenazi, you're Sephardi, you're Moroccan, you're Iraqi, you're Persian, you're, you're Hasidic. What kind of Hasidic community do you come from? And I come home. We're still living in the absorption center in the Ma'onolim in Batyam. Okay. If you come from America to Batyam, that means that in school, the only... In what year? 1971. Wow. 
This means that the only other person who speaks English in all of your school is your sibling who is five years older than you, which means no one speaks English, which means it is the most direct way of being absorbed into Israeli society. And I was so grateful for that because my parents decided to make Aliyah when I was two. So I grew up knowing that America was temporary. Everything was about going to Israel. No vacations, going to Israel. Daddy works on Sunday, going to Israel. That being said, I come home one day and, my, and I said to my mother, I said, Im, I said, what Ada are we? What community do we belong to? What ethnicity do we belong to? She says, excuse me? I said, yeah, they asked me in school today what Ada we belong to. And she said, and? I said, well, what did I know? I said, we're the children of Israel. So I, I, I don't have, like, I'm... So let me ask it in another way. Okay. What are the types of questions that Israelis ask you about spiritual growth as opposed to American Jews? Politics is the biggest difference. Okay. Politics is the biggest difference, meaning to say, in Israel, because of the political situation, no matter what day of the week it is, no matter what election is happening when, it's very hard to disconnect God from politics because of the political conditions that we live in, and, and religious leg- legislation, and members of Knesset that carry the title rabbi, and behave the way they do, and speak the way they do, and use the country the way they do. That is a big difference. So it's very hard. It's very hard here to break through all of those guards when wanting to have a God conversation. Since I came home, I've been home now for two and a half years. One of the things that I, I'm learning about that didn't really exist before I made my way uh, to LA, sometimes I say I was kidnapped to LA, is, um, for example, secular sacred circles of, of chanting. And I've spent the last few months discovering that world. And it's amazing. And it's here in Israel, here in Israel, and it's beautiful. And so there's an opening. But once you had to go to India for that. And when I for three years in a row, 99, 2000, 2001, with the Azrael, it was his dream a program called Or Ulam to lead a Pesach Seder in Dharamsala, and then a whole week of learning that was free of charge. And having the conversations there were like amazing. And the thing I would always do was when I would part from the Israelis, I would say, okay, I want you to take a look at the two of us now. Look at me here. Look at yourself here. Look at the street in Dharamsala that we are standing and talking on. When you come home and visit me in my home, you're going to walk in. You're going to see a wall full of sacred books and you're going to freak out. I want you to remember us standing here in the street together. I'm the same person. That's very hard. It's still hard, I think, here in Israel. And in America, you don't have that. What you, the challenges there are, um, I don't know American politics at all. So I can't, I, really, I spent 16 years there reading only Israeli newspapers. I didn't vote when I was there. I didn't, I really had very little contact. So that being said, I think there's an identity question. See, when you wake up in Yerushalayim, or in Israel for that matter, I hold God accountable to making sure that I wake up in Yerushalayim most days. When you wake up in Israel, you know that you're living the dream of 2,000 years. You don't have to do anything. You open your eyes in a bed in Israel, and you know that thousands of people for thousands of years prayed for your existence. And then whatever you do with your day is a gift. You don't have that when you wake up in America. It's a good point. Who are you? Why are you there? What is your life about? And where do you meet God? Where do you meet God? With the community, Shabbat, with Knesset, prayers. What do you do with that language? What do you do with Hebrew? 
So they're, they're confronted with identity questions that we don't have here. Who we are here? What does it mean to be here? What does it mean to fulfill a dream? How do you live someone else's dream? I once wrote an article called Blind Date in Eretz Yisrael, A Blind Date with the Land of Israel. It was published in Eretz Acherit. And um, I said, what's the deal with the blind date? No one in their right mind would ever go on a blind date because if they love themselves and they love their time, why go out with a stranger when you can sit home and do whatever you want to do or go do whatever you need to do? But why would you spend two, three, four hours? Unless there's some people that love meeting strangers and they think it's a gift and that's great. That being said, unless you think that it's going to be the most perfect evening, you're going to be great. The person you're going out with is going to be great. The conversation is going to be wonderful. It's going to be your presence is going to be exactly the way you would like it to be. Not to this, not to that. Right? There are going to be none of these uncomfortable silences. And so the only thing is, then there's a knock on the door. The only way the evening will succeed is if you give up any of your preconceptions of what the evening's going to be. Mm-hmm. If you hold on to any of the fantasy, it'll be a nightmare, no matter what. You need the fantasy in order to be willing to embark on this journey. And the minute the journey starts, you have to give it a, its own space and allow it to be what it is and who it is. And I don't think that we had that freedom ever here to pause and say, what do we want our homeland to be? So we've been on a blind date for 70 years without stopping to ask ourselves, have I let go of 2,000 years of dream and fantasy so I can now be? That's our challenge here. What does that mean to you to reassess what it is to be a Jew in the land of Israel without other people's expectations? I don't know. I don't know. What does that mean? For myself personally, I don't know. Because I'm not free to ask that question yet myself. You know, my grandparents, both sets, were in the United States. So both of them survived the Shoah. Not our families, yet both of them, both sets of grandparents. My grandmother on my mother's side was born in the United States. That being said, I grew up very much second generation. Very much so. Every Friday night, I light an extra pair of Shabbat candles for Rechja, the Piyasetz Nerebe's daughter who perished in the Shoah. And had she not perished, her Shabbat candles will still be burning. And it was my way of saying, you can, you can extinguish her body, but not her Shabbat light. And it was a way of making sure that in my family, for generations, there would be another set of Shabbat candles. And it's a long story that I tell, and I'll spare some of the details now. That being said, it's, it's, it's a tradition that I've created and I share throughout the world, because my dream is that for every pair of Shabbat candles that were extinguished, there will be a family, there will be a home that will light their Shabbat candles. So I'm not free myself completely from where I come from. My Rebbe Shlomo would say that anyone who's born after the Shoah, their soul comes from there. And I have deep senses and um, internal dialogue within myself about being there and who I was there and how I lived there and how I came out. And only a few weeks ago in a, in a process of, an, of a guided imagery process that I took myself on that part of it, I see myself as, 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 a, as a survivor. And I was actually working with someone and, and I came out of it and that part of it. And I said, I just walked out of a concentration camp. I just asked them for forgiveness for surviving. I just asked them to give me their blessing to live my life. Hmm. So I'm not yet free of what that means myself. You mentioned the Hebrew language and American Jews. So I didn't grow up speaking Hebrew. I started learning at 18 in college. And I remember there were Israelis in the neighborhood I grew up in. 
They grew up in the Reformed Temple. Hebrew for them was just the language they spoke. They could read the Torah. They couldn't read it properly, but they could just open the Torah and read it. Right. When we would sing songs, the Shana Ba'ah, Be'yushalayim, or whatever, I had no idea what we were singing. They're like, you don't even know what you're saying? No idea. Hebrew was just a foreign language, Italian, Spanish, Chinese, Hebrew. I knew how to say the blessings. I didn't understand the meaning. And for the majority of American Jews, especially non-Orthodox, not, people didn't have a strong Jewish education, Hebrew is a barrier. Here in Israel, you take a secular Israeli and say, let's learn some Torah together. They can read it right away. They understand what's going on. You can go from Tehillim. You can go into the Kuzari. You can go jump all over the place. They have access to the Hebrew language. They have access to the Hebrew language, but they don't understand what they're reading. Once one of my students asked me, um, what are the sacrifices that I've sacrificed in my life? And, and I said, language for me is a sacrifice. Having to use words, regardless to the language, to express my thoughts or my emotions or my feelings, that's a sacrifice. A language is a sacrifice that God paid and pays in order to manifest in the world. It's not a blessing. Imagine we didn't have language. We just had hand signals and grunts. You know, we have a lot to learn from children and from babies. When a baby is born, they can speak every language in the world. And it is only the adult world that conditioned them to speak a specific language so that we, the adults, can actually understand what it is that they want and say. That being said, until they master that language, they're taken care of, they're cleaned, they're fed, they're homed, they're loved. Tears, smiles, touch are amazing languages. And we are doomed to the realm of words, the same way that God chose to create the world in words and sound. That being said, I always ask the question, when the Pasuk says, Vayomer Elohim hi or vayhi or, and God said, let there be light, and there was light, how much time passed between those two parts of the verse? And God said, let there be light. I know you're not allowed to have silence when you're talking this way. How long between the words, and God said, let there be light, and there was light? We don't know, and we'll never know. We read the words, and we think it happened immediately. In our imagination, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And we don't know, and we don't know. Silence? Silence, right? What's that uh, musical piece, 433? What's that? Silence. It's a composition. Four, uh, four, minutes, four minutes and 33 seconds of silence. Amazing. Amazing. We would learn silence. So what does it mean to be a Rav, you asked? What does it mean to be a Rebbe? What does it mean to walk with someone? It means to be able to interpret their silence. White spaces. I come back to this. People, anyone who knows me knows that this is what I talk about all the time. Black letters, white spaces. Reb Levi Yitzchak, Sefer Torah. That the black letters are connected is also not fit for reading. Why? Because the Torah of the white spaces is lacking, even though the Torah of the black letters is whole and complete. And he says we have an accountability, have an accountability to the white spaces as much as we have the black letters, even though we only pass, we only define, decide halacha based on the black letters. In the future, it'll be the Torah of the white spaces, and we need to maintain that responsibility. So language is an interpretation no matter no matter what language we're talking about, every translation is in a translation. You're translating from Hebrew to Hebrew. You're translating. You're translating from Hebrew to English. You're translating. My question is, do you have consciousness of the fact that what you're doing is translating and interpreting? You can just tell me if you don't want to answer the question. I have 
never not answer the question I'm asked. Okay, fine. Because I find it, I feel it's my responsibility, right? The, here's the question. The question is, is Ayeka a question or is there a question mark or is there an exclamation point? When God calls out to Adam and says, where are you? Is it a question mark or is it an exclamation point? It's an exclamation point. That's what I would say. Okay. This is like bonus material though, because I didn't ask you a question yet. <laughs> I asked you, I just said, I'm going so to ask you a question. You have to answer the question. So therefore, so therefore, I find it's my responsibility, it's my obligation to, to answer. From your experience, 16 years as the spiritual mentor, let's say, Mashpia Wuchanit. Yes. In the conservative rabbinical program. That's what it was, right? Correct. So what do you feel that Jewish tradition means to American Jews, the American Jews that you interacted with? Connection, belonging, identity. I think those are the primary things that it means. And challenge. Because one, one element of the challenge is where does God fit in to this conversation? And what does it mean to have God talk on the cusp of two centuries? And how do we allow God into our life? Right? When the Z, the Y, the Z generations, they're what I call they think that they're omnipotent and they're omnipresent. And what happened to a God that was omnipotent and omnipresent? Opening up a dialogue with God talk, with God presence, with surrender, with service, right? This is where tradition challenges. Obligation, commitment, surrender, service, egalitarian equality. I would tell my students that half of these aren't Jewish concepts. Equality, egalitarian, control. We're not. We do service. We serve. We're God's servants. Those are concepts that, that American Jewry, most, most of the Western civilization, don't know how to engage in. And I always felt that that was part of my work, was to open up a conversation and dialogue and experience of what that looks like. What does it mean to serve God? What does it mean to answer to God? What does it mean to respond to what your calling is? How do, you rec- how do you claim calling as actually what we're meant to be doing in this world? So how do you do that? By doing it. What does that mean? <laughs> it means multiple things. It means um, that the first question I ask always is, what does God want from me? And what does that mean? It means that I ask, what is the unique service that each one of us has? And how do we pursue that? It means that I'm not embarrassed to talk about something that I don't know about at all. I once, you talk about things you don't know about? I, I talk about God all the time. I once said to my mom, I said, do you, do you know what it's like to walk in the world talking about things you have no idea about? I talk about God all the time. And I'm in dialogue and in relationship and in service all the time. And I don't know. Where does humility come in? Where does humbleness come in? Where does the other come in? Where does devotion come in? Kanim Levim Yisrael is not egalitarian. You're talking about the different biblical tribes that have been handed down until today. That's true. How do you negotiate that? What does that look like? What does it mean in your core that we are all God's beloved children, each and every one of us is? And we're unique and other. I remember after my first year at Ziegler, um, the second year student, the second year began and there were new students. And I called my mom petrified. I said, Im, when I was born, how did you learn to love me? And she says, excuse me? I said, yeah, there's five years between David and me. And it's not like you left a corner in your heart vacant when David was born. He filled your whole heart. And then I came along. And where was there room for me in your heart? 
because here I was in my second year at Ziegler and there was a whole new class of first year students. I'm thinking, who are you? And what do I do with you? Because my heart is full. And then I had to learn to create space and for my heart to expand. Unconditional love. That's what I have to offer. That's what God taught me to offer. Personally, I don't always experience it. (laughs) I'd be lying if I said that I wake up every morning feeling unconditionally loved by God. I don't. And that's my work. And that's my, that's really, that's my work to wake up in the morning feeling unconditionally loved by God. And I don't. And I have to, I have to claim it and I have to justify it and I have to work for it and I have to serve for it. And I pray that I can. And that being said, one of my students once asked me, how do I do what I do? And how do, how do I be who I be? And I said, I don't say anything I don't need to hear. And I listen when I talk. Unconditional love. What does that mean? We don't know what that looks like in the 21st century. We don't believe it. We don't even need, know how to feel it when it happens. Really? I think maybe I'm wrong. I'm clearly I'm wrong. I'm, I'm often wrong. And that's my sense. I don't know. For sure on Purim, I feel unconditional love. Amen. Yes. One day you're the highest, the highest day. Correct. Friday night, I walk into shul. I just really want to hug everyone in the shul. I do on the men's side. I can't do it on the women's <laughs> side. And there's this one guy who's so depressed lately. And I said, how are you doing? He said, I don't know. I said, don't worry. I got enough love for you. I'll give him a big hug. Amazing. 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 And it's a blessing. You know, this Friday night we shared a shul and, yeah. and I was sitting there. And uh, this young woman who I've met three times, maybe, she was there and she walked out and she came back and she sat next to me. She thought I knew where her sister was. And she looked at me and she goes, Remimi, I need a hug. And she glued herself, glued herself to me. So here's the thing. We started diving Marv and she glued herself to me where a point that my cheek was on her head. Wow. And I didn't daven. I didn't finish davening Marv because I knew that if I did... With words, like in my heart, yes, but with words, she would feel my cheek moving, and then she would know that I wasn't completely with her, because I was sharing my time between her and between davening. And I wanted her to have an experience of being held by someone who was only with her. And then I said, Master of the World, so you'll read the words from my heart, because I can't speak them right now, because I'm holding someone. It reminds me of a Hasidic story. Many of the things you're saying... Also, by the way, what you said about Reb Shlomo standing at the street corner, I don't remember which story it is. It's in Lamed Vav. You know, the book by... Yes, Sotana, for sure. God bless Sotana. a book, the Stretchner Rebbe, I'm not sure which Rebbe, who the, some father comes, and he says his daughter or his son is in some, uh, you know, church or something like that, and he stands at the street corner for three days until the person comes out. It's amazing. Yes. That other story. Yes. And that's a story, of course, that Shlomo told, so he... He knew he had the map. Yes, yes. Based he, on the stories. And I have the map based on, on, on him. We're going to get to him. Is that Hashem? What role does halacha play in your life? It is my, um, the way I organize my reality. It's a language that God speaks. It is also a tormentor. And I'm bound to it. I'm bound with it. I think that would be the best way to describe it. I'm bound to it. And I'm bound with it. I am committed to halacha. I feel it is the language that God is speaking in order to be in relationship. And at the same time, there's a part of my soul which is completely antinomian. Completely what? Antinomian against nomus. What does that mean? Against halacha ah. of any kind. When the Gemara says that when the Talmud says that God only is only has in the world 
four cubits of halacha. What that means to me is that on the one hand, halacha is the language that God speaks through the process of deciphering halacha. And on the other hand, halacha is a straitjacket. And anything holy and divine has to be greater than what we can conformed into a straitjacket. And the challenge is going to be how to walk with both simultaneously. There was a period in, actually, when I first arrived in LA, that in my home that I created there, and I brought all of Yerushalayim with me. So when you walked into my apartment in LA, the walls, everything looked exactly the way my home in Yerushalayim looked. And you thought you were back in Yerushalayim. That being said, the only place in the house that didn't have things on the walls where I could dive in Shmonaisli, the sign prayer, was the door, because everything else had pictures. And, okay, the door. So this is what would happen. Sometimes I'd stand up to Davin, and I'd bow, and I'm saying, like, are you an idiot? You're bowing in front of a door? Really? And then sometimes it would be, wow, I can't bow because God is present. And so subsequently for a, for a bunch of years, I actually ended up davening sitting down because I knew that if I stood up to daven, it would either be awe or ridicule, and in both of those conditions, I couldn't daven. So I'd sit, and that would, the chair would contain my kavana, and I could then daven shmonayasai. And I also knew lahalacha, like sitting was not something, was not a gore makiv. Sitting is not a hindrance in davening. If you can't stand, you can still daven. And it took a bunch of years until I found my, through a learning of the Beit Yaakov, the son of the Meashiloch, the Ishbitzer dynasty, the Ishbitzer Adzin dynasty, which is where I live, where my, my adherence to halacha lives. Through a teaching, I understood that in essence, it's not in front of, it's in the presence of. That I pray in the presence of, not in front of God. It's a poor translation. Da milifneat almed, right? No, before you're standing, which isn't like every shul. Correct. You don't stand before God. You don't stand in front of God. You stand in the presence of. It's the face of. Shifri Hashem, as it says here on my wall. Right? Pray, pour out your heart. It's in the presence of. The face. Panim is face. You pray in the presence of the one who sees you, because we don't see our face. The only part of our body that we can see, our back as well, right? And, but our, of our front part of our body, we can see our nose where we breathe from, and the rest of our face we can't see. But God sees our face. So I don't have a life without a falacha. That makes my life hard. It makes my life hard because so many people that I want to be in dialogue with, and so many people that I want to be living with, and so many people that I want to be praying with, they're practices other than my practice. And that's a mechitza. And it's true that I won't daven without a mechitza. A divider. It's also true that I always make sure that I daven in a shul that the mechitza is what I call user-friendly. I need to be able to see the other side of the mechitza. I need to be able to have access to the shlech I need to know that there's a chariot that's being created with four wheels, and each wheel is created by what happens, the daven that happens on both sides of the mechitza. And when my soul brother in Los Angeles was crossing over, and I was with him the last hours, literally to the end, and this was in LA, and he's from here, Rami Wernick, of blessed memory. And we we're sitting together for a few minutes, and he started to apologize. Can you imagine someone on their deathbed apologizing to you? And I said, Rami, there's nothing you ever did that you need to apologize for. And he said, yes, I promised you that we would do LA together. Like we were two kids that were so far from home. Los Angeles. Okay, I always say, you know you're in trouble when there's an ocean and a continent between you and home. And he promised we would do LA together. Like, and he's apologizing that he's leaving me alone in Los Angeles. That's what he's apologizing for. And I said to him, I said, Rami, you know, I said, you know I'm an Orthodox woman. 
what's a mechitza between family? You know, I stand on one side of the mechitza, I dove on the other side of the mechitza. I said, don't worry, wherever you are, I'll find you there. What's a mechitza between family? And he said, I wish I had your faith. And it was at that moment that I did something that I did for the first time, because my doctoral work is on funerals and reframing and reclaiming funerals as a sacred drama and as the ownership of our last chapter of our life. Sitting with him for the first time, I started to say Tfilat Aderich. The Traveler's Prayer. For him. For him. For his neshama. For his neshama, right? His soul's going to start on a journey. And there's a prayer that we can say, the prayer for the travel. It's the first time ever that it came to me. And it's become my practice now. Tfilat Aderich. A prayer for the ascent of mm. the soul to the mm. other side. So that's how I continuously... One of the reasons like Reb Levi Yitzchak is so close to my heart, on different Rebbe's, like in basketball, I have my opening five, right? Reb Levi Yitzchak, because of his ability to read the white spaces around the black letters of the halachic paradigms. So halacha is a language that I speak. It's the dance that I dance. It's the music that my soul reverberates off. And at the same time, I know that it also needs other forms of containment for it to echo off of. How would your life have been different had you not met Reb Shlomo? I'd be dead, literally. Why? Why? Because I grew up seeking. I grew up learning. I grew up in a relationship with God since I was a child. I remember I was three and a half when I made a pact with God. And it was over a bicycle in camp because I was always tall and my grandparents were 5'11". My mother was 5'11", my mother's parents, right? Well, I have these tall jeans. I was always taller than all the other kids, and the bikes in, in camp were divided by age group. So sometimes, like, I'd steal the bikes of the older kids until I was caught, kind of like how I do halakha. It's like always under the radar, you know? <laughs> You're always okay and kind of like, okay, it'll be okay, but not always kind of really okay. That being said, and I was caught one day, and they took the bikes back, and I said, okay, master of the world. I remember this day. I said, okay, master of the world, I'm not seen, I'm not understood, I'm not going to be taken care of. You and I, we're going to have to do this together. That's it. And that's what I made my pack with God. And unfortunately, in some ways, it's been, a, it's been a narrative that I'm working now very intentionally to shift um, in terms of being able to be seen by others and being able to be taken care of by others. And, you know, you asked about Miram Sarah and and Rib Mimi, and it's hard at times that people see Rib Mimi and they don't know who Miriam Sarah is when she walks into the house at the end of the day and what that looks like when she's in her private time and space. I have an image. I'd be happy if they asked about the other one as well. So since I was a child in relationship with God, and yet, how do you do God? How do you do, how do you, how do you, how do you daven? How do you, how do you do Shabbat? How do you, how do you do halakha? And Learning always. So for me, it was, I thought that the realm of learning would be my, my entry into understanding the divine. I started going to classes when I was 12 years old, 11 years old. The Yom Kippur War was 74. I was 11 years old. Benny Gal of Blessed Mary Hashem Yikom fell on the first day of the Ta'ala. His mother was one of our teachers at school. I learned to sing, to sing Nigunim, Sudashashit from Benny Gal. I saw him once. He was 19 when he was killed. And I remember he was singing at Pnei Akiva. And you know how kids see things that they're too young to experience? You know how kids, when they see their parents kissing, they go, ooh. So I remember I was not, I was 10, and it was Sudash Lishit, and he was singing. 
and his eyes were closed and he was so into it. And I had that moment. Like I remember the smirk on my lips because I saw him having yuchud with God. And I was nine, ten years old. And what I know of that, but I knew what I was seeing. I remember the smirk. And it's because of that that I, he was never forgotten to me. Eight of the Chavra and Arsnif and Benakiv and Rehovah were killed in the Yom Kippur War. Wow. And he's the only one that I have a face to. Like, I know who the Orleans are, the cousins of, the brother of, but Benny is the one that I see in my eyes because he was singing Sudash Lishit. How do you connect? So always learning. Um, after he was killed, Rav Simcha Kuk of Rehovot, Chief Rav Rav Rehovot, started a class in Kuzari. So from the age of 11, I've been learning. And at the same time, torment. Because I couldn't, I kept on saying, it's a wall. No, it's not a wall. It's a door. There's a door here. But I'm hitting my head against a wall, but there's a door. And that was torment. And uh, so was always seeking, was always searching, trying to find my way into God's world. Learned, 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 daven, daven, daven. And at the same time, still not being able to make that breakthrough. When I was 16, I spent two Shabbatot on the Moshav with Rav Shlomo, and my soul knew that there was truth there. That being said, I couldn't stay. I was much younger. I was 16, the Chavra and the Moshav, when they were 20s with two, three kids. That's not seven, eight years. That's a generation. He taught in English. Who understood English? Like, how do you learn Torah in English? How do you teach Torah in English? I could understand the words. I couldn't put a sentence together, and I needed to learn. I needed concepts. I needed constructs. I needed to, what to work with. And then all the hugging was like not happening for me. And, and I remember after those two Shabbatot, it was, it was a painful decision. I left B'nai Akiva because it was, uh, because the boys and girls were together. I went into my Haredi life <laughs> for a good seven years or so. For them, I was a poster child because I grew up from and observant my whole life, but then realized that that wasn't the way. And, um, and it was in my twenties, my early twenties where I realized that I wanted to learn, and a woman, a single woman learning in the Haredi world didn't exist. Um, I had come to terms with the fact that I grew up bilingual. That wasn't the worst thing that my parents did to me, was raising me bilingual. And so I went back to Reb Shlomo, because I was already older. I could do the bilingual, and I couldn't do the Haredi, because I was miserable, because I wanted to learn. And for Reb Shlomo, I was like a kid who went off to college and came home. And I often say that Reb Shlomo gave me a new pair of eyes, and he gave me the key to the back door. Guess they used the front door. Family. Use the back door. I never knew growing up that our address was actually 2836 Webb Avenue. I thought it was 2838 because that was the side door that I walked in. Because the neighbor that lived on the second floor, that was her door. But I walked in with her door. I never knew our address was 2836. So someone gave me the key to the back door and they gave me a new pair of eyes to see and to learn and to pray with. He gave me a language to speak to God with. My students always make fun of me because the irony is davening, davening, only Hebrew, only Sidu. Praying to God is in English, because that's, I learned from Shlomo how to talk to God. So you count in the language you learn to count. Sidul, only Hebrew. Matbeat filah, the structure of the prayer, only Hebrew. When I'm talking to God, when I'm one, and talking with God, when I'm one, right? So I talk to her, and I talk to her in English. He, she, it, they. He, she, they, it. Well, you know, he, bilingual. If you think he, when you say he, and you think... Hebrew or, or English. Correct. That's how I do it. Uh-huh. I translate always. I translate from Hebrew to English, from English to Hebrew, from poetry to philosophy, from halakha to mysticism. I'm always translating. And anyone who doesn't understand that, they don't understand who I am. That's the truth. Anyone who doesn't understand that when I'm speaking, when I'm processing, 
when I'm observing, when I'm performing, whatever it is, whatever halakha I'm performing, whatever mitzvah I'm performing, whatever I'm doing, they don't understand that I'm always in translation, body and soul, masculine and feminine. If they don't understand that I'm always in translation, then there's a part of who I am that they really just don't understand. That being said, Rip Shlomo taught me how to be able to do this. He taught me how to be able to dance this dance of the black letters and the white spaces, of davening and praying, of singing in silence. He enabled me to find a way to be in relationship with the divine. And I wouldn't have been able to stay in the world and I wouldn't have been able to sustain myself in the world if at some point I wouldn't have gained access to the other side. To the back door. To the back door. What do you think Reb Shlomo's legacy is? I think his legacy is to be able and willing to walk in the world uh, in the service of the divine without a map and to not give up on what that life of service looks like. It's a legacy of loving and being loved. It's a legacy of the role and the place of Torah in the world unconditionally. It's the Torah of mistakes. It's the Torah of brokenness. You know, I almost flunked sciences in high school. Almost. And the one thing I remember from junior high in, in sciences was the law of the connected vessels. Right? If you had five, six vessels that, of different sizes and shapes and they were connected somewhere, if you, if you poured liquid into any one of the vessels, the liquid would always line up equally in all the vessels. And that was called the law of the connected vessels. And I believe that what Rabbi Shlomo taught us was the, what I call the law of the broken vessels. We think our teachers and the Torah, for that matter, it's all aligned. Their parnasah, their family, their psyche, their all of it, their whole totality is it's all aligned. And what Shlomo taught us is the law of the broken vessels. Some vessels are in place. Some places, some vessels are very much not in place. The master of the world has multiple faces in the world, and part of the part of the faces are are chesed faces or loving kindness faces, and some of the faces of the divine are kil kanovenokem, a vengeful and an angry God. And the legacy that he that he left is, and I used to say this about one of my other teachers of, of blessed memory, Rabbi Mickey Rosen, love beyond betrayal. That's what I learned from both of them. Love beyond betrayal. And that's how I can, you know, in this, uh, in this journey that I did a few weeks ago, and I see myself walking out of a concentration camp, asking for forgiveness for choosing life and for surviving. And the person that I was with offered me a glass of water after I opened my eyes. And I said, I took the glass from Adi. And, and then I said to him, I can't drink this, Adi. I can't say a blessing right now. And if I can't say a blessing, I can't drink the water. I walked out of a concentration camp a minute ago. I can't say a blessing. Love beyond betrayal. Our parents, our friends, our teachers, God. That's his legacy for me and a legacy that I want to share, that love beyond betrayal is possible and we can't live without it. Let's say somebody comes to you and they say, I'm a good person. I'm a moral person. I help people. I help the environment, animals. But... Shabbos doesn't mean anything to me. Kashrut, keeping kosher, doesn't mean anything to me. I'm a Jew, and the reason I'm a good person is because I feel it's connected to my Jewish identity, but this whole Torah and Talmud and Shulchan Aruch and all this, I don't, I don't identify with it at all. 
why, why should I be connected to Judaism when I'm already a good person? Can I tell a story? I'm in India. I'm on a panel. It was myself, Venerable Thurden Chudrin, and Roger Kamenetz. Dharamsala, 2000, maybe 2001. And it's on spiritual journeys. The format is each one of us had 10 minutes to make an opening statement. Then each one of us asked each other a question. It's a brilliant format. The presenters, we got to ask one of each other a question. Then the floor was open for questions. And our closing comment had to be something we had learned that evening. That's great. So we were learning the whole evening. We weren't talking at. We were in dialogue with each other and we were learners. Brilliant. I spoke about my journey. I don't remember everything I said. One of the things, though, I said, which is like very core um, to my understanding of myself, is the body that I received is a garment for my soul. What I can identify about my soul, it's a soul of service. And therefore, whatever garment my soul would have been given, it would live out in service. If I was, my soul was, was inserted into the body of a Seventh-day Adventist, or a Shiite, or a Sunni, or an Amish, I would be a Frum, Shiite, Sunni, Amish, Seventh-day Adventist, Baptist, Catholic, Protestant, Sikh. This time around, my soul was given the body of a Jewish woman, and I'm a Frum Jewish woman. And this is the language that my soul was asked to serve with. And I said some other things. When it came time for the panel to ask each other questions, Venerable Thurden Children turned to me. She's in orange robes. Her head is completely shaven. I see a Buddhist Tibetan nun who has taken, taken second vows of nuns, which is unique in the Tibetan tradition at the time. And she says to me, I heard what you said. And when you look at me, what do you think? If you can imagine a moment of silence in India, the room stopped breathing. And I look at her, and then I remember she was born Jewish. I was just going to say, was she a Jew? <laughs> she was born Jewish, which I had completely forgotten because what I see, I was, I'm taught to see people as they are, and that's who I see. The room, dead silence. It was as if in a moment I was going to be lynched. There was like no, and, right, and really like the gift of Rabbi Shlomo's teachings. I said, I love you. I respect you, and I am totally envious of your robes. <laughs> Everyone cracked up. The laughter. Everyone started to breathe again. And as we're all laughing, I asked myself, am I being completely honest? And when we stopped laughing, and I knew I was in safe territory, I said to her, and I'm sorry our tradition failed you. Because looking at her, I said to myself, if she was willing to do within the Jewish tradition what she did in the, in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, she would have been the first female Orthodox rabbi, not me. It would have been her, not me. And it was our failure. I didn't say to her, and I'm sorry that you took yourself out of the Jewish tradition and you went to the Buddhist tradition and you invested yourself there. I didn't say that to her. I said, I'm sorry, our tradition failed you. So if someone comes to me with that question, there's something that we, the, those of us who have chosen to live a halakhic life and to teach Torah from that perspective have not done our homework well enough. And I hear that first of all as work that I need to do. And, and honestly, I want to believe that I'll find a way for them to be in Shabbos, even if it's only for a few minutes, because they can't be without Shabbos. And I think it's, uh, it's, 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 um, it's the question is who's the onus on? The onus is on those of us who are 
living our lives within the halakhic paradigms to create a vocabulary and a language and an experience. This person would want to have to have that experience in order to be exposed to it. Yes, and they need to be able to know that there's a reason that they would want it. So you were seeking, and your seeking brought you to all kinds of places in the Jewish world. But if somebody's not even seeking to start with, they're not going to have that exploration. If they weren't seeking, they wouldn't be in conversation with me. They come to me. Oh, that I've seen, personally. <laughs> but if they weren't seeking, they wouldn't come to me. Ah. And if they're coming to me, then my question is like, what are they really asking me? What do they really want? Are they saying, I don't need Shabbos? Or are they saying, tell me why I should keep Shabbos? What am I missing in Shabbos? Is that... What's Shabbos? Like, what is, what is Shabbos? I don't know what it is. Got it. The life I'm living doesn't have room for it. But there's something that you must know. There's something that you can tell me, share with me. Right? And then I'll say, you want to know Shabbos? You know, I'm going to hold out her name because I want to hold her. And she's a very, a very known person in the world of Yiddish theater. She was doing um, a movie this is 25 years ago that had to do, had Hasidic dancing in it. And she was sent to me to learn about Hasidic dancing. Okay, this happened in the Kalbach Shul in New York. So in the best of, it was the beginning of the con- concert, it was the Shana Rabbah concert, and we were introduced, and she's doing this film, a Hollywood film, she needs Hasidic dancing. Uh, okay, so as the concert's going on, me in my manner, I comb through all the sfarim that were all the, the books, the Hasidic books that were in the library downstairs in the shul, trying to find all these different teachings that I could. And then towards the end of the concert, everyone's like dancing. Okay, fine. I, I grab her. I said, this is it. This is what you need to know about dancing. This is what you need to go about Hasidic dancing. And that, that was it. And yes, it's true. I spent Cholamoid. We went to Crown Heights. We went to Borough Park. I, we went to different Hasidic communities for her to see what the Hasidim, how they're dancing. But first and foremost, I had to get her into the center of the circle dancing. So if someone comes to me and says, I'm all this and I need job and what, but I don't keep Shabbos. And first of all, I go, you know, Rosenzweig, not yet. And then let's, and then what's Shabbos? And then, and then there's Shabbos and there's Shabbos, right? So I also want to say that Rav Shomu gave me Shabbos. He gave me learning. He gave me Shabbos in a different way. He gave me God in a different way. He gave me people in a different way. And he gave me the core challenges of my existence. So we're at the last question that I gave you for homework. The easiest homework you were ever given. Imagine you had a giant billboard that millions of Jews would stop and read for a few seconds. What message would you put on your billboard? It was so brilliant, I have to say. It was, I, was, I was laughing. I was laughing because, um, you know, I'm trying, to, I'm trying right now in my own personal life to, to really ask myself hard questions about who I am and what my life has been and where am I headed. And, um, and ask, challenge my core, my core beliefs right now. And then as I'm walking into a conversation about that, I receive your text. If you had a billboard and I start laughing because I'm like, well, that's like clear. Like my life isn't clear. What I'm doing in the world isn't clear. But the billboard, the billboard is cleared. God loves you and sees you unconditionally. Like that's the billboard. I, I, I believe in my core. I believe in my core and, um, you know, and this is one of my challenges with the Me Too movement. We've created a, a sterile world, and that for me is a world that I can't live in, a world that we can't touch anyone, male or female, because we don't know anything about their identity. They can be bi, they can be trans, they can, they can be anything and everything, and because of that, we can't touch anyone anymore. 
We can't speak to anyone anymore. It's a world I don't want to be living in. You feel it's the same over here in Israel? Yes. Really? I experience it that way. Mm-hmm. I rewrite my emails. <laughs> oh, wow. I censor what I say and what I don't say. I am continuously in fear because the Me Too movement, it's protected women, it's protected men, and at the same time, no different than halacha, no different than halacha, gives us a way to live with God, and it's quarantined God into four cubits of halacha. And it's not really a world that I want to be living in. So my billboard is, God loves you, God holds you, God sees you unconditionally, your life matters. There's no me too on God embracing you. No. In a positive way, there would be a me too. That God is embracing you and me too, God is embracing me. (laughs) (laughs) Instead of the negative. Yes, yes. All right, I I didn't feel like that was a good enough conclusion, so I'm going to ask you one more question. (sighs) What are you optimistic about? Whatever comes to mind. I'm optimistic about, wow, I'm optimistic about people procreating and believing that the world is a good enough place to bring children into. I don't know if I'm optimistic about it or it makes me optimistic. But when I see families of all forms, shapes, colors, configurations, when I see people believing in life, that makes me optimistic. I don't know if I'm, a, I'm an optimistic person in my core. Maybe that's some of my own journey to move into optimism from what I think is realism. That being said, What makes me optimistic is people not giving up on making the world a better place. People not giving up on giving the world back to God at the end of the day, a better world that they received it in the morning. And I'm optimistic about that. I'm optimistic that that will never stop happening, that there will always be people that will feel accountable to the world and accountable to God in a way that they will feel called and demanded to make a difference in the world every day. I'm optimistic about that. Thank you very much, Mimi. Thank you. That was Rabbi Dr. Mimi Fagelson. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I thought it was a fascinating conversation and really enjoyed my time speaking with Mimi. Please make sure to take care of yourselves in this special time in the world when we're all dealing with the coronavirus, hopefully which will be finished very, very soon with everyone in good health. And if you have a little extra time on your hands, make sure you listen to the other episodes of Jewish People and Ideas. You can find those any place that you listen to your podcasts, by searching for my name, Barack Holman, B-A-R-A-K-H-U-L-L-M-A-N, or Jewish People and Ideas, you can go to the website, jewishpeopleideas.com. You'll find the episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, YouTube, any place that you listen to podcasts. And please also make sure to check out my other podcast, The Hasidic Story Project, where I upload a new Hasidic story every single week. There are currently 60 stories with many, many more coming. Nine and a half hours so far of content. If you have kids or you know anyone with kids or you're an adult who enjoys listening to really good stories, you'll enjoy this project, the Hasidic Story Project. 
You can also find it at HasidicStory.com, H-A-S-I-D-I-C Story.com. And I want to give a special thank you to the Afrati family who have been such great supporters of this podcast. I want to thank you for your support and encouragement. And I look forward to the next episode together with you, my listeners. Thank you for listening. Take care and stay safe.